The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 9, verse 1 through 9. But Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Michael, and good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to Christ Prez. That, uh, of course, also includes those of you who are joining us remotely from the last part of your vacations and uh, for uh, other reasons. And uh, I am grateful uh, to be with you today and also grateful to be returning back to our study in the book of Acts, which we suspended for a while uh, for the Advent series. And today we come to uh, the subject of a most unlikely convert, whom we first uh, are introduced to as Saul of Tarsus, and uh, eventually he becomes the Apostle Paul and writer of about a third of the New Testament. So, uh, a number of weeks ago, it was announced that a well-known pastor in uh, our particular tribe, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, Frank Barker uh, died, and a whole lot of things were written about Dr. Barker. He has this, um, you, know, you know, many years, decades actually of, of, of influence, not only uh, locally at his hometown church in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Briarwood Presbyterian Church, which he planted with his wife, Barbara, but also uh, far beyond uh, that local context. And one of the interviews uh, about uh, Frank Barker that was sent to me last week uh, included a quote from a fellow minister in Birmingham who knew him very well, and he said this about Dr. Barker. If you meet a Christian in Birmingham who is 60 or older and you ask them how they came to Christ, I'll bet my money that at some point they will mention Frank Barker. He led many thousands to Christ possibly even more than 10,000. Barker came to ministry late and to faith even later. I'll repeat that part. He came to ministry late and to faith even later. And at the end of his first year pastoring a church, Barker thought to himself, something is wrong. I wonder if I am really a Christian. So I want to start this new year by asking the question, is there anything to this premise that it's possible to be a credentialed 
minister and not be a Christian. According to Jesus and the Gospels, the possibility is actually quite real, if not ubiquitous, uh, at least in the New Testament era. In Luke chapter 18, he, he tells a story about a, a religious professional, not unlike myself, who congratulates himself for um, you know, how he's not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, uh, you know, crooks, etc. And it says that Jesus pronounces a verdict over this prideful religious man that he actually doesn't belong to God. And then Jesus has this confrontation uh, in Matthew chapter 23 with a whole lot of religious professionals, much like this man uh, that I just described. And they're referring to themselves as sons of Abraham, and they're, they're offended that Jesus would challenge them on anything. And Jesus says, make no mistake, you're, you're not sons of Abraham, you're sons of the devil. And, and so the premise, out of Jesus' own mouth, that you can actually be a credentialed minister even, and not know Christ, has some validity to it. Now, this man in front of us is one such man, according to his own testimony about himself as it unravels in the New Testament. This was a man, Saul of Tarsus, who thought with all of his heart that he was thoroughly on the side of God. But in reality, he was thoroughly an outsider to God and thoroughly an enemy of God. God, and he didn't even realize it. And so, here we are, beginning a new year, and, and for all of us on some level, the new year is a time to hit reset, and it's a time to convert to something. It's a time to convert to things that we haven't been doing that we know we should be doing. Maybe it's diet, maybe it's exercise, you know, maybe it's, you know, leaning in more with family or friends, maybe it's just being less of a jerk. I don't know what your conversion desire is for this year, but what I do hope, since we are a church, is that you and I are converted in such a way that, 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 that makes it possible for us to convert sustainably in other ways. Because if we're not converted to Christ, any change that we try to make in our life is most likely not going to be sustainable. Christ is both our converting reality and our converting power to everything else, and the life of the Apostle Paul bears testimony to that. And so what I want to do as I try to explain a little bit about this encounter that the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus has with Jesus is, is what does it look like, what are the elements, what are the components of of having been truly converted to Christ. There's a rational component, there's an emotional component, and then there's a relational one. And so we'll start with the rational. Here's the truth about Saul, and, and you, you noticed it. Saul came to believe a claim that he had previously considered to be ridiculous, that Jesus Christ had been crucified dead and buried, and then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Paul 
and his contemporaries thought that was ridiculous until he didn't. Until he had an encounter himself orchestrated by Christ himself, he meets the risen Lord, and that changes everything for Paul. And and this isn't the only place that that encounter is talked about. Paul also writes about it in Galatians 1.16, in 1 Corinthians 9, and also in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that Christianity actually stands or falls on whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead in time-space history. And he, he, he goes so far as to say it this way, if Christ is not risen bodily and in time-space history, then our faith is useless, we are still in our sins, and Christians are the most pitiful people in the world. We're pathetic. If we're giving our lives to this, if we're organizing everything about ourselves around this, and Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then we're nuts. We're crazy people. And so there were these two lawyers in the 18th century, very decorated, successful attorneys who made a career out of proving things that were true and proving things, other things were false. Their names were Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. And one day, one of them, they were both atheists, by the way, and one of them said to the other, it's a true story, one of them said to the other, Christianity stands upon a very unstable foundation. He continued, there are only two things that actually could support Christianity. Number one, the alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ, and number two, the alleged conversion of Saul of Tarsus. If we can disprove those stories, which should be easy to do, Christianity will collapse like a house of cards. And then Gilbert West says to Lord Littleton, I will write a book that debunks the alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Littleton replies, well, if you write that book, then I will write one that debunks the alleged story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, that he heard a voice from heaven, that he, that he met a resurrected person in Jesus Christ. You debunk this and I'll debunk that. We'll write books about it and Christianity will be over. It will be disintegrated and the two of us will accomplish that. So sometime later, the two met again. And one of them said to the other, and I quote, I have a confession to make. I've been looking into the evidence for this story and there may be something to it. And the other said, same. Let's keep investigating. And they did keep investigating, and at the end of the process, Gilbert West did write a book by the title of The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, offering his own informed defense of the historicity of that event. And Lord Littleton wrote a book, you guessed it, called The Conversion of St. Paul. What's the basis? I can't come back on Easter and I'll unpack a lot of it for you. But at at the base level, there are over 500 eyewitnesses, 500 recorded still living eyewitnesses when, when Paul the Apostle wrote about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. He says, talk to these 500. If you're not going to take my word for it, talk to the 500 people who are still living who said they witnessed Christ 
risen from the dead, who are willing to give their lives for that, that claim and, and who are completely unwilling to recant that claim at any cost. And then 11 of the 12 disciples who spent three years with Jesus before his death, burial, and resurrection, 11 of the 12 died as martyrs because they would not recant their belief in the resurrection of Christ. There are also through history other smart people like Harvard's Simon Greenleaf, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, and the founders of every Ivy League university except for one, which I talk about here a lot, that believe this stuff. And so you can say a lot about Christianity. You can also validly say, well, all this doesn't prove that it really happened. It doesn't prove it didn't happen. Any more than, than anyone can prove, you know, it doesn't prove that it did happen any more than anyone can prove that it didn't happen. Belief depends on faith in the same way that unbelief depends on faith. But... Stories like Littleton and Gilbert West at least make it plausible and non-dismissible for people who have intellectual integrity. Look into it. You think this didn't happen? You know this didn't happen? Prove it, and let's see what happens. And you may end up right where you are, but prove it. Don't just dismiss it without thinking. Prove it. Secondly, the emotional component to conversion. There's a, there's a rational and then an emotional component. Paul is emotionally involved leading up to this moment on a, a visceral, a curiously visceral level of rage. It says that he is breathing out murderous threats toward the disciples of the Lord. Why would you feel a need to double down so hard if you think that these were just foolish fringe people who were believing something ridiculous. Why would you be that invested in discrediting them, in eliminating them, if there weren't something else also going on in your heart? You know, chapter 26, now this is, this is after, sometime after Saul of Tarsus had become the Apostle Paul and, and was, was on one of his missionary journeys. And, and it says that he's testifying before King Agrippa about his own, and I quote, raging fury against believers in Christ in his former life when he didn't believe. Raging fury is how he describes his own reaction to the existence of belief in Christ and the resurrection. 1 Timothy 1, at the end of his life, he writes to a younger minister and protege, Timothy, I was once a persecutor, a violent man, the chief of sinners. That's me. Now, Carl Jung says that Saul of Tarsus was a fanatic in the very worst sense of the word. Jung goes on to say, fanaticism is only found in people, this kind of fanaticism is only found in people who are compensating for secret doubts. And that's the theory behind the threats and murder and the raging fury of Saul of Tarsus. It just seemed disproportionate. There was this committed resistance in Saul of Tarsus because at his core, in all likelihood, there was a foundation upon which he had built his life that he knew was being threatened. 
by these claims that the people of Jesus were making about the supremacy of Jesus over all people, places, and things, and about the resurrection of Jesus, and about other otherworldly things like the enemy love of Jesus, which we'll get to in a second. You know, chapter 6 also, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul the Apostle now refers back to the old Saul of Tarsus as one who used to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Well, a goad is a sharp instrument that shepherds use, and what shepherds do with a goad is they, they prod sheep with the blade of the goad in order to steer them to safety, in order to direct them toward life and health as opposed to out in the wilderness where they would go on their own, where they would meet with wolves who have long fangs and voracious appetite for sheep. It reminds me of the title of one, one of Andrew Peterson's kids' fiction novels, Go North or Be Eaten. That's what a, that's what a, a goad was. It, was. it was a painful prod to prevent you as a sheep from wandering to a place where you would get eaten alive. And here's Jesus again and again and again through different people goading Saul of Tarsus to flee in the direction of life and health and away from the direction of eating himself alive with self-righteousness and with performative religion. Sheep who kick against the goads create more pain for themselves in an effort to become independent of the shepherd. But when you become independent of the shepherd, you put your own life at risk. And so, so here we have Jesus goading Saul of Tarsus on this encounter, on the road, in this encounter on the road to Damascus. He stops him, he blinds him, and he confronts him. All very painful things. Why? Because Paul had been caught up in this compensatory fanaticism, in this fragile ego medicating fanaticism of his that was born out of insecurity concerning his own foundations that were being threatened by the influence of this new movement. He takes a walk, it says, from Jerusalem to Damascus. That is a 135-mile walk. That's how committed Saul of Tarsus was to eliminating Christians, 135 miles on foot. And it's, it's on that journey that Jesus confronts him because he's been doubling down. He's been breathing out murderous threats. And the, the curious thing about how, how it says in the beginning of chapter 9 that Saul's still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord and his people is that something beautiful had just happened to Paul very recently. When Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr of history, over whose martyrdom Saul of Tarsus presided, this man Stephen, openly in front of them all, with Saul standing there approving of his death, you know, recounts Old Testament history from memory and points to Jesus Christ as Messiah, claims that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he prays to God with his eyes wide open, looking into heaven as people are pelting his head with stones. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Which would have become a familiar prayer to Stephen and all others who believed in the resurrection and in the efficacy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Young's theory becomes very plausible in Saul of Tarsus's case here. Because in the face of kindness, because among those for whose forgiveness Stephen is praying is Saul of Tarsus. Forgive him. Forgive the president of my unjust execution. Forgive him. And so in the face of this kind of enemy love, Saul of Tarsus becomes more violent, not less, more determined, not less, to eliminate the people of Jesus. Why? Because he's haunted. He's haunted by the fact that Stephen, in recent memory, was a better man dying than Saul was living. And Stephen was a better man losing than Saul was winning. Stephen was a better man dying on the ground than Saul was alive on his feet. And that goaded Saul of Tarsus. Either he has to double down on his violence or he has to renounce everything that he's built his life on up to this point and bow to the same Savior and Messiah that Stephen had. Stephen's secret, which was a secret that Saul had not yet learned, was that he had become a son before he was a servant. He was tethered viscerally, personally, emotionally to Jesus, which made him secure and fearless. Something we all want, I think, a sense of being secure and a courage that kills fear, even in the face of death. But Saul, on the other hand, he's built his life on performative religion, on making a name for himself. He has an elite education, both from the secular Greek educational institutions and from one of the top rabbis in Israel named Gamaliel. One of the commentaries says that, that Saul of Tarsus is the equivalent of a summa cum laude graduate of the Harvard Divinity School. And so he's built his life on all of this stuff. He's worked so hard to get here. And he's got all of this religious zeal where he he later says, you know, I was was so far beyond my own peers. Like I I I was the Mark Zuckerberg of people my age. Like when I was, I dropped out of college because I was already where other people dreamed of being at the end of their careers at age 19. That was my life. Paul was a victim of what the playwright Tennessee Williams once called the catastrophe of success. Many are rich and famous and miserable. You familiar with that quote that's often attributed to Thomas Merton? I don't know if Merton said it or not, but somebody said it. That all of my life I've been climbing the ladder of success and finally when I got to the top, I realized the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. And that's what's going on with Saul of Tarsus here. He's in a a crisis. 
For him to follow in Stephen's footsteps would mean to own and denounce the very foundation upon which he had built his life, which incidentally later on after he converts to Christianity, he refers back to as dung, crap. It's actually what would be regarded as an offensive expletive, an offensive four-letter word translated directly from Philippians. All of it was sewage, to put it politely. The irony is that when Saul of Tarsus refers back to his life of dung, in which he persecuted people like Stephen and threw them into prison, Paul wrote those words from prison himself. Paul had become Stephen to other people. Paul had become the ray of light from Christ to others and and as such became a goad for others. There's so much irony there. Philippians is widely known as the letter or the epistle of joy. And, and, you know, Paul makes no bones about it. He, He has a happier life in prison with Christ than he had ever had as an enslaved free man without Christ before. Now, this is my story. This is, this is anecdotal. I don't know what your story is, but I've been a Christian for over 33 years now. And I've met a lot of people over the years who have not aligned their lives or their, their hearts or their belief systems with Christ. And in my experience, and in my conversations at least, I'm not saying this is true of you, but in my conversations, most who have rejected or resisted Christ have done so much more for emotional reasons than rational ones. I have an atheist friend who was so resistant to Christianity that I just asked him about why once. And he said, I'll tell you the truth. It's a lot more plausible to me to believe in the existence of God than it is to believe in the non-existence of God. But I know that if I give my life to Christ, I will have to forgive some people that I hate. And I just don't want to go there. And then this one ha- has happened a lot over the years, right? When young couples, which I love this, you know, young couples ask me, you know, with, with excitement, you know, we want you to officiate our wedding. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, we do premarital counseling. You good for that? Yeah, I'm good. For, good we're good for that. And I said, I, I need you to fill out a survey first, a questionnaire first. You good with that? Yeah, we're good with that. And sometimes I never hear from the couple again because there's one question in there about sex right now. There's no other question in that, in that questionnaire that could drive a couple so enthusiastic away except the one about, are you willing to wait? Are you willing to submit yourself to biblical teaching on this? People just disappear. I've been ghosted probably 30 times in 30 years by about 30 couples from that question. It's an emotional reason more than it is a rational one. And then you start putting out there things that Jesus said about things like money and politics and kingdoms and power and sin. People's claws come out. They come out. Every uncomfortable truth is a goad from Christ. And we will either double down in our rage or we will let go of our foundations and surrender. There is no middle ground. 
But if we're the ones among the ones who double down against the things that Christ has clearly said, this voice of Jesus, why are you persecuting me, is not just for Saul of Tarsus. It's a personal thing. Sin is more a relational thing than it is a legal thing when we sin against God. You know, Saul of Tarsus had had a habit over the years of shooting the messenger, not realizing that, as C.S. Lewis said, he was actually being a recalcitrant bullock toward the messenger behind the messengers, capital M, toward the Savior himself. His fight was with God, not with Stephen. And then there's the relational piece. So Paul, Paul came through relationally, or I'm sorry, rationally, emotionally, he came to his senses. He also came to his senses relationally, which is, I think, the one that really drove, drove it home for him. Because relationally, the thing that brought Saul of Tarsus from the outside to the inside was not just love, which is the foundation of all things true and beautiful, loving God with everything that you are, loving your neighbor as yourself, but enemy love, which is otherworldly which cannot be attained outside of the one who gave himself for us, who, who demonstrated his own love in that while we were still sinners, while we were still acting as his enemies, that's when he died for us. That's when he showed the full extent of his love. The love of Christ. The first words that Saul of Tarsus hears from Christ are, Saul, Saul. This is not a scold. Every time a person's name is repeated twice in the Scriptures, it's an idiom. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, it's an idiom that communicates affection. Absalom, Absalom. Martha, Martha. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This signals affection, not condemnation. And the sequence matters as well. The affection comes before the confrontation. But the confrontation does come. To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Woman, woman, I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The two go together, simultaneously flexing the muscles of compassion and conviction, of kindness and prophetic fire. That's what you call gospel ministry. If you're never made to feel loved, the gospel is not in the room. If you're never made to feel squirmy with conviction, the gospel is not in the room. It's a both-and proposition. Why do you persecute me? You know, Jesus is so tethered to his own people that when you punch them, you're actually punching him. It's a personal thing. I mean, how do you feel, parents, if somebody punches your kid? Secondly, the enemy love of others that you've hated. I've already talked about Stephen's prayer for the forgiveness of, of his killers, including Saul of Tarsus. Very open, no doubt very disturbing to Saul. But God also appears to a man named Ananias after Christ converts Saul on the road and says to this Christian man, Ananias, receive this man Saul. I'm sending him to you. And Ananias says, what? 
You know, th- this guy has, has been raging against your people. He's dangerous. We're afraid of him. We've been seeking asylum from him all this time, and I'm supposed to receive him. And God says, he is now my chosen instrument, my chosen messenger who will suffer from me in the same way that he has caused others to suffer. He will now suffer from me, and he will bring the message of salvation. First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And what are the first words from Ananias to Saul when the two meet? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Welcome. The kindness that has haunted you, sir, you're now an insider to it. You're no longer an outsider to it. Welcome home, Brother Saul. And then, lastly, the love that's formed inside of you in response to this love. You know, what Jesus and Stephen and Ananias had been for Saul, Saul then becomes for others as you see the story unfold. The next thing he does is he starts preaching in the synagogues. And the moment he starts preaching publicly, contradicting the very things that he stood for previously, he starts to be the one who is on the receiving end of murderous threats. And if we go all the way to Romans chapter 9, we see the enemy love, not received by Paul this time, but, but, but given by Paul, where he says, those in the synagogue who will not accept the message of Christ, these are still my brothers according to the flesh. And if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation that they might be saved. I myself would be cut off that they might be saved. And now in front of us, we have a table that has been set for us by Christ who himself was cut off, that we who treated him as an enemy might be reunited with God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of this. Thank you for the rational reasons, the emotional reasons, and above all, the relational reasons that you have given us, not only to turn over a new leaf at the beginning of a new year, but to have an entirely new life for this year and all the years to come. Thank you, Lord, for this table that reminds us what all of this costs you, that you, Jesus, before Stephen, were as Stephen, being destroyed by those that you came to love, who treated you as enemies, as you prayed loudly and very publicly, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Lord, wherever we are today, whatever we're going through, whatever we're afraid of, whatever we're looking forward to, would you meet us at this table? Remind us of the cost that you paid for our souls and for our sakes and for our redemption. But as you do that, Lord, remind us also of how valuable and how much of a treasure we must be to you for you to go to those lengths, to be willing to be cut off, Jesus, that we might be reunited.
to our Creator, who is now our Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.